from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work, everyone, and our ongoing conversation of how we can help women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, and I'm the Senior Director of People Analytics here at the Wharton School. Over the last year in our programming, we brought you this string of extraordinary role models from all different kinds of industries, stages of careers, business owners, leaders, teachers, writers. And these women have shared all these amazing tactics and strategies, ways of thinking and doing that are key to their success. And almost everyone has confessed at some point they feel like a fraud. While they were climbing the ladder of success, they were secretly waiting for someone to realize they had no idea what they were doing or that it must have been a mistake that they were in that role. Each time this comes up, Patty Hall, my producer, and I look at each other through the glass and we go, again, another one. How is it that all these awesome women keep feeling like they are imposters? And we realized that given how often this comes up, we really thought it was time that we went back to the well of wisdom to figure out why is it that so many women and why so many people suffer from this ironic and very limiting phenomenon. The source of this women is none other than Valerie Young, who was the author of The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, Why Capable People Suffer from the Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It. Valerie is going to help us understand what this phenomenon is and how we can stop being limited by it. She can also help you personally, so please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And tell us, when do you feel like an imposter? What's the secret you're keeping about how you're not really prepared to do what you're doing? Give us a call, and Valerie and I will help you through it. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON or email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Patty's particularly passionate about this issue, so she'll be really happy to hear from you, and she'll bring in the message, and we'll talk about what is it that... uh, is holding you back inside when you're clearly capable of moving ahead. So with all that said, I'd like to welcome Valerie. Welcome back to Women at Work. I'm so happy to be here, Laura. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So since the last time you were on the show, I, as I said in the introduction, I've talked with all these amazing women. They achieve impressive levels of success, have huge societal impact, yet almost everyone at some point acknowledges this kind of pernicious self-doubt. Why do so many of these confident women struggle to be confident? Is this the imposter syndrome at work? Well, it sounds like it might be. It might be, um, Laura. You know, the imposter syndrome is pretty specific to, you know, people who feel like they have just kind of slipped through the system undetected and and they're going to be found out. So if you do find, if your listeners find that when they accomplish something big or small, that they dismiss it or they minimize it or they kind of, you know, flat out negate it by saying things like, I was just lucky or, oh, they just like me or timing or computer error, then it's very likely that that specific kind of, uh, you know, struggle with confidence is indeed the imposter experience at work. So when they're attributing their success to something outside of their hard work, their talent, their skill, their good decision making. Absolutely. Although hard work is a tricky one because there are some people, Laura, that say, oh, it's only because I work harder than everyone else. Not not out of the sense of that's required to do the job, but out of this internal belief that for other people it's easier, but because I'm not as bright and capable and talented, I have to work harder than other people. Ah, so that the um, workaholic nature of their their workaholism um, may be an indication that there's actually uh, a way that they're trying to compensate. Indeed, yeah, it really could be. Now, as you're talking about this, it sounds like not everybody manifests this in the same ways. And I remember from when we talked about this last time, um, there were kind of different personalities that go along with this. Can you walk us through a few of those? Sure, yeah. I wouldn't call them personalities as much as... You know, fundamental to imposter syndrome, Laura, is how we experience what it means to be competent. So while no one likes to fail, the research shows that people who feel like imposters, we experience shame when we fail. But but here's the thing, and I think this is what you're referring to, Laura, from last time. Not everybody experiences that shame the same way. It has a lot to do with how you personally defined competence. So, for example, to the perfectionist, 
failure is everything, right? Right. Because 99 out of 100 is failure, or some tiny flaw in an otherwise, you know, stellar performance is considered failure. Which also means you're almost destined to fail if what you're aiming for is perfection. Absolutely. and here, It's here's a binary lot, option. Even if you knock it out of the park, even if it is flawless, you, you're still not satisfied because you think you probably could have done it better. Okay, so you, you just can't be satisfied, and so um, it's, you're bound to be unhappy regardless of the results. Yeah, I mean, you're always going to be critical of your own performance. But that's just, you know, a lot of times when you read about imposter syndrome, it's going to focus on perfectionism, but that's the, not the only thing happening. So there's the perfectionist, but there's also the person I call the expert. So that's essentially the knowledge version of the perfectionist. So for, for that person... Competence isn't about the quality of their work. It's about the quantity of knowledge that they know. And, of course, in their mind, they can never know enough. Okay. So failure is going to be, God forbid, somebody asks you a question and you don't know the answer. Where you've written quite eloquently, actually, about um, the beauty of not knowing and recognizing you don't know and the value of that. Absolutely. I mean, are there some things that you really should know? I mean, if you're flying my airplane, (laughs) you're (laughs) performing surgery on me. Yes, there's some things I want you to know. Um, But, you know, there are some things that are truly unknowable until you do them. It's like we want to not only know everything, but we want to have it all figured out in advance. And sometimes you have to just jump in and trust that you can figure it out as you go along. Isn't also part of that trusting the other people around you and realizing that you can learn from the people around you? Oh, definitely. But see, if, if you subscribe to the kind of the expert definition of, of competence, you're going to be comparing yourself to other people in a negative way and judging yourself. So instead of thinking, I'm going to surround myself with really people who are smarter than me and, and, you know, and taking the shame out of that, thinking like that's a skill set, which it is. That's very different than being feel like, oh, my God, everyone is smarter than me. So, well, this kind of imposter syndrome or this phenomenon tortures us inside. It sounds like this could also have a really negative effect on how you behave in the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's definitely implications in the workplace. And and I mean, you know, there's kind of good news and, and bad news to these different types. So, you know, in addition to the perfectionist and the expert, there's, you know, the natural genius. That person thinks competence is all about ease and speed. So mm. they expect themselves to come into a new job, for example, as you said, and just they feel like they should just hit the ground running, you know, and pick things up very, very quickly. Or back to your point on people around you, if, if your view of competence is kind of the soloist. In other words, it only counts if I do it all myself. That's going to be a challenge in the workplace because you probably don't ask for help when you really need help and should, you know, bring in other people to help you. So, you know, how you view competence really does have a an impact on on your work life. Because if you're any if I'm understanding if if you're in any of these extreme categories, um, it's going to make it painful for you when things aren't going well, especially if you're working in an environment that's not suited to that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, what, one thing that people, you know, I, I'm a big fan of not thinking in terms of extremes. So, for example, let's say you are the perfectionist. Often you'll read articles, Laura, and it'll say, you know, just stop being a perfectionist. <laughs> right. Well, thank you very much. That's very helpful. Right? Like I'm going to stop being 5'5". Five five. It doesn't yeah, work that way. Exactly. So I tell people, you know, there's good news and bad news. So the good news about being a perfectionist is you care deeply about the quality of your work. Not everyone does. You do. But the part you want to let go of is the part where there's shame evoked mm. when you fail to live up to your, um, you know, realistically, unsustainably high standards. To the, the person I call the expert The good news is you value knowledge and learning. Not everyone does. But so keep that part. But the part you need to let go of is this belief that you actually can know everything. So wherever the shame is, that's what you have to take a look at. How do I, you know, take the good parts but let go of the shame? Right. So why do we why do we wind up like this? What's making this happen in us? Because I have a feeling that if we can understand why it's happening, maybe we can move past it? 
Um, yeah, th- that's a piece of the puzzle, absolutely, to put it into a context, because I find that we tend to sometimes kind of over-personalize the experience. You know, obviously it's happening in us, so it feels like it's all about us. But I also think it's important to kind of consider the source, as you said. So, for example, I, I think there's a very strong connection, Laura, between this topic and diversity in, and inclusion. And I know there's a lot of initiatives happening mm-hmm. in companies. So, for example, we know that people who are first generation, the first generation of your family to go to college, or the first your first generation to become a white-collar professional, you are more susceptible to imposter feelings. Oh, because you don't feel at place in the community you've arrived in. Yeah, it's like, what am I doing here? You know, suddenly, I actually have a funny story about that. There was, a, I think, a professor who got a full academic uh, scholarship to go to Dartmouth College. She'd grown up, you know, pretty poor working class. She got there, and all these kids, you know, around her were, you know, Muffy and Skip and <laughs> names like <laughs> right. that. So she called home and said, Mom, it's so sad they had to send these kids to special prep schools just to prepare them to go to college. <laughs> right. It was like totally outside of her experience, which right. makes sense, right? I mean, so did Sonia Sotomayor, when she went away to Princeton, here she grew up in a so you know financially disadvantaged community in the Bronx. When she got to Princeton, she said, I felt like I was visiting an alien land. She kept waiting for someone to tap her on the shoulder and say, excuse me, you don't belong here. So that's this extraordinarily brilliant young young woman who is pulling herself up by her bootstraps could still feel like she doesn't belong in a place that she really earned the the right to be at. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially an elite place like like Princeton. Of course, which is so different than where she came from. But by the way, the person I'm talking to about this pernicious, um, powerful phenomenon, the imposter syndrome, is Valerie Young, who's also the author of um, The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, Why Capable People Suffer from the Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It. If you are one of these secret imposters and you want to join in the conversation, give us a call. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us at um, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So, when somebody like Sonia Sotomayor arrives at Princeton and has this imposter feeling, like we know that the story ended pretty well, but what are the things that can happen if you embark on a new environment, a new experience, you've reached that new opportunity, and those feelings are really strong inside of you? It are, is it just something we can just tell, shush, go away, um, or is there a danger if we do that? Yeah, I don't think that's going to work. Now, let me, let me be clear. Sometimes... You know, you might be in a place and you're doing a job for a while and you become very, very comfortable and very good at it. And, you know, and the voices get quieter and quieter. But it's when you then kind of up, you know, up the ante and you go for another job or you're thinking about going for a promotion or relocating or you know, anything. You're asked to make a presentation. Anything that's going to, you know, heighten your performance anxiety is likely to you know, bring those feelings back with a with a roar. So it seems to me like this has a real connection, actually, or is one of the many holes in the leaky pipeline that women face, that we know that um, as women move through career, they fall through the holes in the leaky pipeline and they don't make it into leadership positions. And I'm wondering if one of the th- one of those holes is the lack of is the imposter. And, the, and that they don't have the sense that they can take the next step and that they should take the next step. Yeah, I think there's two parts to that. I, I absolutely think that confidence is at the root of a lot of women choosing to not advance in their careers. I think it's the reason why a lot of women uh, business owners don't scale their business. Mm-hmm. Is that and, they don't realize, they don't think they can. They don't think they can, but they also have, they misunderstand what it means to be competent. Mm, you know what? They think competence is knowing 150%. Ah, right. And it's and men usually view the issue of competence very differently. And speaking of men, um, we have Mike calling in from the Bay Area. Mike, thank you so much for calling in to Women at Work. We're delighted to have you with us. Absolutely. One of my favorite shows. Ah, even better. So, Mike, what's on your mind? What would you like to share with us today? Yeah, so one of the pieces I hear that's missing is, is that development piece, socioeconomic. I hear that, 
but the piece, so I raise daughters and, you know, I have a loving wife who I'm always challenging, hey, you're better than what you say you are when you put yourself out there and raising leaders. And really it, it comes full circle with the family and the team, right? We call ourselves the team of saying, hey, we're all in this together and we all have kind of that, um, all that syndrome, right? I have that syndrome and my wife has it, my daughters have it. And we all have to say, well, here's, here's why you're a leader and here's what leaders look like. Right. And so we're, we're raising that up. And so that question's always going to be there, whether you're a leader or not. And it's how do we deal with that question once it rises up? Mike, that is phenomenal. Valerie, do you want to add to that? Sure. Absolutely. I, I would say, you know, we, we didn't really touch on this, but you're absolutely uh, right, Mike, that partly the messages that we get growing up from parents, especially other important family members, um, school teachers, coaches really can shape how you see yourself as a bright, intelligent, capable person, whether you want to go into leadership or not. Not everyone, you know, you might want to be an artist, for example. Maybe you don't want to lead, but there's various messages that we get growing up. So if you're the kid who came home with, you know, four A's and one B, and your family's only response is, what's that B doing there? You get a very powerful message that said, the only thing that's acceptable is perfection. And for kids, praise is like oxygen. They really crave that. So I love how Mike and his wife are raising their daughter. There's a wonderful book uh, Carol Dweck wrote out of Stanford, D-W-E-C-K is her last name, called Mindset. And she talks about the typical family dinner conversation is with kids is, what did you learn in school today? To which the kids say, nothing. (laughs) That's what I said growing up. And she said, you know, wouldn't it be a more interesting conversation to say, let's all go around the table and say something we struggled with or was difficult and how we overcame it? Because people who don't feel like imposters are much more likely to have, um, you know, a friendlier experience in relationship with failure. They see it as an opportunity to improve, not as a source of shame. And you know what? To also a complementary aspect of what Mike talked about um, reminded me of something we learned from Girls on the Run, where they have an exercise on identifying negative self-talk, and mm-hmm. they make a take. The group has a code word that they all pick together. My team's word was pickle, and mm. if somebody said, "Oh, I can't do that," you would say pickle to them, and you'd right. have to rephrase it to say that's something I still am going to learn to do, and reframe mm-hmm. it positively. So, Mike. Um, I think it's great that you're telling your girls and telling each other and owning that you all have those kind of negative self-talk moments, but you're interrupting them. Um, Mike, do you have anything else you'd like to add to the conversation or a question you'd like to ask? You know, one one thing is um, I definitely want to read the book uh, because I think this would be helpful for for our family. Um, But what's the best way to encourage someone who has that, uh, you know, that, that syndrome, I don't think I can do this, but you absolutely no questions could from the outside see that they can. What's the best way to encourage someone in that situation? Yeah, the best way is, is Mike, is to, to not focus on, you know, the, the outcome and on being smart. Because when kids and therefore adults get very invested in being smart, they're much more likely to grow up to feel like imposters. So let's say there's a topic or a subject in school that is, is, is more challenging. You know, that kid could get a C on that, but the focus is on did you work as hard as you possibly could. So it's much more about effort than it is about outcome, and that will make all the difference in the world. And, you know, to encourage kids to have interesting failures and to really talk about, okay, what could you do differently next time? To turn it into every failure, every challenge into a learning opportunity. Absolutely. Mike, thank you so much for listening to Women at Work and for calling in. It was really a pleasure to have you today. Um, If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And join Valerie Young and I in this discussion of um, the imposter syndrome and how we can thrive in spite of it. So, Valerie, um, one of the things that was interesting that Mike mentioned was that he also struggles with this. Mm -hmm. Do you find that it's predominantly women, where do men fall into the, the, the kind of rainbow of um, the ways that the imposter syndrome can present? Sure. Yeah, there are a lot of men who experience the imposter syndrome. I, years ago, I did a workshop at, at Boeing 
uh, Laura, and I walked in the room, and I literally thought I was in the wrong room because it was 80 percent men, which I, which I think you know represented the demographic there, but but still. And for those men to hear other men talk about, and, and the quote was, the sheer terror that I feel when I'm given an assignment that feels over my head, for them to hear other men talk about that was very you know, reassuring and, and, and liberating. I speak to a lot of, especially graduate students at Stanford, Harvard, MIT, all over the country. And I would say 30 to 50% of the audience um, are men. So it's, it's not unique to women. I will say, though, women as a group are more susceptible to imposter feelings. And, and as importantly, as a group, it tends to hold us back more than men. And that's a critically important point. So if you wouldn't mind, unpack that for us. Why? Give us the details on it so that we can see this with a little more clarity. I think one of the reasons is that, again, women as a group, we're more um, naive. And I don't mean that in a negative way. But we... we we have a certain naivete about how the work world works. You know, we think if I do a good job, I'll be noticed and rewarded. Mm -hmm. We think if the job description has 10 things listed that I need to know all 10. I think men culturally understand, well, if I know five, what the heck? You know, I'll throw my hat into the ring. Right. And it's I'll a fundamental it difference. Yeah, I'll figure it out as I go along. And, and boys grow up, again, culturally... They have to puff up. They have to kind of boast and bluster and act strong and brave when they don't feel strong and brave. And just as an aspect of boyhood. Absolutely. You know, to survive as a young boy, you know, you have to act, you know, confident and strong when you don't feel it. There's nothing like that pressure amongst girls. We have different pressures, but it's not. (laughs) Girls torture each other in different ways. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So I don't think that kind of winging it thing comes quite, I know it doesn't come quite as easily as it does to women. Because we're not kind of socially trained that way. Yeah, that's a part of it. Also, you know, the research shows, I mentioned earlier, Laura, no one likes to fail, but people who feel like imposters experience shame when we fail. For women, it's more problematic because the research shows that as a group, I mean, obviously you're always genderalizing, but as a group, girls and women internationally, cross-culturally, we are more likely to blame ourselves when things go wrong or we fail or we're criticized or we make a mistake. And boys and men, as a group, are more likely to externalize. So it'd be kind of the difference, you know, if somebody says to me, you know, that report was inadequate, what I might hear as a woman is, I'm inadequate. Right. So it's what it's who we are. It's not what we do. Exactly. Now, let me be clear. There are a lot of men who are highly sensitive to criticism. Mm-hmm. But there's also, you know, we all know also men who are like, well, well he's a jerk. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. they, they dismiss the messenger. It just slides off. Yeah, and they don't think they as again as a group, men don't ruminate the way women do, mm. and so we go over and over and over that stupid thing we said, or the, the you know when our boss yelled at us, or the criticism we got in our performance evaluation. Right, the things that keep us up at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah, and you know, so many women say they'll come home and they'll be going on and on to their you know their male, obviously their husband or their boyfriend, and the guy's like, "Don't think about it." You're like, forget about it. That we're not, we can't put it aside as easily. It, it, it's harder. So I think in that way, you know, it, it does become more more challenging for for women. I mean, we and the research is clear. It came out of I think it was Hewlett Packard. They found that internally applying for a job that women felt like they, you know, they would not apply unless they had all of the, um, you know, the. The bullet points, all the experience, and men would apply if they had, you know, six. Right, and that to do so otherwise would make them feel like an imposter. The person that I'm talking with who's helping us understand all of this is Valerie Young, who wrote The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, Why Capable People Suffer from the Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It. Are you an imposter? Do you feel like one deep down inside? Give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. And you can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 1- So since we know that for women, this is really an issue of confidence and competency coming together, how can women build their confidence as they build their competence? Yeah, I think it's first to be more conscious of what is the internal rule book that's operating right now. Mm -hmm. You know, what is that automatic script that runs through our head? 
when we're having an imposter moment. Okay. So to so, be aware of what we're saying to ourselves. Yeah, to get clear on what that is. And then, you know, I think it's, it could be useful, Laura, to ask yourself, in that moment, what fundamental right am I denying myself? In other words, we're all entitled to have a bad day. We're all entitled to have a bad interview. I've had bad interviews. You know, I don't feel great afterwards. It's okay to be disappointed, but it's another thing to beat yourself up and to judge yourself. Right. And that is it. that's that critical line, it feels like to me, is that difference of, I don't like how this happened. I want to do better next time. And having your self-worth plummet because of something that went wrong. Exactly. So it, you, you need to give yourself a different message. Let, let me give you an example. There was a woman who was asked at the 11th hour to fill in for somebody who was supposed to make a presentation. She had to scramble to pull together the presentation, delivered it. Everyone thought it was outstanding. And she said to me, you know, I just kept telling myself that was just a bunch of BS that I threw together at the 11th hour, right, the last minute. And I said, no, how you need to look at this is, wow, how good am I Right. that I can pull together information at the 11th hour that other people genuinely find useful? See, that's the fundamental paradigm shift is instead of the amazement or sloughing it off like ugh, I was th that kind of um, way that you diminish yourself by saying you're demurring, you're trying to, you know, not puff yourself up. You could actually change it and own it and be proud of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, 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 you know, the messages that we give ourselves are so powerful. Um, you know, the people who don't feel like imposters, Laura, they're no more intelligent or capable than you and I. The only difference is they think different thoughts. Well, you know, we have Wendy calling in from New York. And so, Wendy, I'd like to say welcome to Women at Work. And what are your thoughts on this? I am not feeling like an, an imposter because, because <laughs> right now I have never felt more connected to a conversation. I just turned on the radio and I was like, that is me. I am an imposter all the way. I'm 55 years old. I have a great career. I have felt constantly like I wasn't good enough. I became a mother later in life and went through sort of, oh, my God, I'm an imposter as a mother. Everything you're talking about is really powerful. I'm raising a young girl, and I, I want her to grow up confident. And um, just you're speaking to me, ladies. You're speaking to me. Wendy, I'm so glad to hear this from you. Um, Valerie, what would you share with Wendy? Well, you know, kind of going back to, to raising, well, I mean, being a parent, you know, there's no way to do it perfectly, right? So all, all, all parents are an imposter on some level if the definition is, you know, perfect parenting. But, you know, with girls, I've really gotten good, of course, over the years of not saying, oh, you're so cute or aren't you pretty. But I really had the battle saying, oh, you're really smart because the smart thing also fuels imposter feelings. So if you could, as a parent raising a daughter, if you can stay away from labeling them as smart and just go, wow, you work so hard on that. Mm -hmm. It really makes a difference. Yes. And as a matter of fact, and we can talk more about this after the break. Wendy, one thing you might want to look into is some of the work that Adam Grant's done on this. He wrote a great New York Times op-ed on it um, and ways that you can Praise your kids for being a hard worker and for being passionate about learning and that they're really they're curious as opposed to praising what they accomplish. And so you're helping honor honor who they are inside rather than what they achieve. Um, but we'll talk more about this when we come back from the break. Wendy, thank you so much for calling us. I'm so glad you're listening and that it's touching you like this conversation has touched us. Um, this is Laura Zarrow at Women at Work. Give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And when we get back from the break, we'll take your calls and we'll talk some more about how we can interrupt the imposter syndrome. Thanks so much. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work, everyone, and today's conversation about the imposter syndrome. I'm Laura Zarrow, and I'm the Senior Director of People Analytics here at the Wharton School. In our conversation today, we're exploring this crazy phenomenon, and I'm going to describe a few things and tell me, 
Does this sound like you? Call in 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Do you secretly worry that others will find out you're not as intelligent and competent as they seem to think you are? Do you often dismiss your accomplishments as a fluke or no big deal? And do you think, if I can do it, anyone can? You may be suffering from the imposter syndrome. And here I have Valerie Young with us today, author of The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, Why Capable People Suffer from the Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It. So give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And tell us, are you suffering from the imposter syndrome or have you found a way around it? We'd love to have you join in the conversation. And while you're calling into Patty or sending an email at businessradio at SiriusXM.com, I'm going to welcome back to the show Valerie Young. Valerie, thank you so much for being with us. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, you should know, the phone lines have been a buzz. The studio is a buzz. This is clearly something that hits home for people that I think a lot of people have not had language to discuss. Do you find that as you're talking to people, they keep having these aha moments when you walk in a room? Oh, a- absolutely. And I think that one of the biggest aha moments is just to you know, literally walk into a room, Laura, and see hundreds of people there and realize... I'm not the only one who feels this way. <laughs> well, I confess, I'm one of those people that also struggles with it. But one of the things that I think is so powerful about the work you've been doing recently is not just helping us understand that exists and understand it in ourselves, but also figure out how do we move past it? How do we interrupt this phenomenon so that we're not held back by it? Yeah, I mean, clearly that that's the part everybody wants to get to. Is the... <laughs> right. Make it better. <laughs> Yeah, give me the magic. Give me the magic pill. You know, and fundamentally, Laura, I've I've learned over the many decades I've been doing this. It really comes down to, to three things, which makes it kind of simple when okay. you think about it. I like Just it when things, things get kind of digestible like that. So, what are the yeah. three? Well, first of all, is you know, is when you do realize you're not the only one. This is where I have to break it to people that you're not special. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a lot, millions and billions of people. Some of the most accomplished people on the planet have these feelings. So the number one thing to do is to normalize the imposter experience. So remove the shame from it. Take the shame out of it. And now let me be clear, it's different than just talking about it or sharing. You okay. know, sometimes people think, well, if you just keep talking about it, that's enough. It'll gradually go away. But I, I do not think you can share your way out of imposter feelings. No, I think the sharing helps you be aware of it and become articulate about it, but it doesn't necessarily help it go away. No, it doesn't help it go away. I mean, think about, you know, how how often we as women sit around with our girlfriends and talk about how fat and ugly and old we feel. (laughs) Right. You know, and it hasn't really helped anything. (laughs) So sometimes it can actually have the, the opposite effect where there's some research, for example, with adolescent girls that finds... The more they kind of commiserate and talk with their friends about, you know, stuff that depresses them, the more depressed they get. The more, the more they ruminate, mm. in other words, then they're more likely to experience depression. Whereas boys, you know, if their girlfriend breaks up with them, instead of calling all their friends and talking about it, you know, endlessly for hours and days and weeks and months, they will distract themselves. Mm. I'm going to go play basketball. I'm going to start working. I'm going to tinker with my car. And so, and is that healthy is or that's just thing. also another way that people instinctively respond, but it still doesn't make it go away? It doesn't. And I'm not saying don't share because there's a lot of, you know, stress reducing, you know, elements of sharing. But you can't, I'm saying you can't, it's, it's more than sharing. Mm-hmm. It's normalizing is different because normalizing, number one, recognizes that up to 70% of people have these feelings and it takes the shame out. So it's not confessional in nature. So how do we normalize it? And how do we help our kids normalize it when we see, or our peers when we see it coming up in other people? Naming it. But naming it in that offhanded, off-the-cup way. So, so a thing that managers can do in an organization is to say, um, you know, they could say something like, oh, you know, I read this really interesting article about something called imposter syndrome. So if they know, for example, that an employee, you know, seems to be holding back because of self-doubt. Or they themselves could say, oh, my God, I had a huge imposter moment in that meeting. Am I the only one? 
And to say it in that offhanded, non-shameful kind of way can be very powerful for the people around you. Well, you know, I'm going to share something personal. And Patty, I hope you don't mind. So Patty and I talk about this all the time. Um, we And what we've started to do, and it sounds like what we've actually done is started to normalize it for each other, is that when we'll be talking about things, whether it's our work together on the show or our work in other areas of our lives, um, we'll catch each other in an imposter moment. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we'll name it, we'll flag it. And then I've actually watched Patty rethink and rephrase how she's going to do something and go out and like be a superwoman. Yep. Patty, do you mind that I'm like bringing all this stuff up? No, no, not at all. And um, now I can say on the air, Valerie, this top knowing that this is a thing has changed my life because I guess that has normalized it for me. Yes. And I think that we maybe it's because we had the good fortune of talking with you about a year ago, but in um, giving it a name and then reframing how we talk about stuff, I've seen it make both of us better. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that, I'm glad you said that because re- uh, reframing is the second thing we need to do. Ah, so okay. Once we've normalized it, is to reframe. As I said earlier, people who don't feel like imposters or people who are confident are no more intelligent or capable or talented. It's just that literally they think different thoughts. So it's In- it, the reframing is kind of just like that girls on the run exercise of stopping the negative self-talk and positioning it in a positive way. Yes, it's about turn, the three things we really need to, to reframe, um, Laura. One is failure. Okay. Um, again, you can be disappointed, but think about athletes. I think athletes are a perfect example. They're very disappointed when they lose. They could be sitting on the sidelines sobbing at the end of the Super Bowl. They have huge expectations for themselves. Sure, but they don't hang up their uniform and mm, go home and never they don't play quit. again. Right. They go watch the game tape. They, 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 you know, they're disappointed, but then they figure out, how can I get better? What can I learn from this? How can I play better next time? Yes, and so it's a learning process that they're engaged in that keeps them improving and helps them learn from the failure. Absolutely. They find and the they information like they in have it. a right to make a mistake, to be wrong, to have an off day, so that, that you take the shame out. Now, I mean, is there a place for shame? Absolutely. If you really blew it off, if you didn't try your hardest, yeah, some shame might be in order. <laughs> not an inappropriate emotional response. No, not at all. You know, but I, I love what Garrison Keillor told this graduating class. He told them to have interesting failures. <laughs> right. That's the perfect way of putting it. By the way, the the person who's sharing all of this incredible insight with us is Valerie Young, and she's the author of The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, Why Capable People Suffer from the Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It. If you'd like to join the conversation, we'd love to know, are you struggling with the imposter syndrome? Have you found a way out of it? Give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You know, when you talk about the athlete, I also think about um, the way I was educated at art school. One of the processes that we had to go through in every single class, our homework was visual. And Mm -hmm. all 20 of us would come in, we'd put it up on the wall, we'd all have an equal responsibility to present our work to the class and to provide critical feedback on everyone else's work. And then we'd go back to our desks, we'd take everything we had heard, we'd put it to use, and we would do that two or three times a day in what were six-hour classes. And so you had to move past your work being who you were, and it was just the work that you did, and embrace that getting better was an ongoing process of, like, an iterative process where the criticism was the thing that was going to help you grow. But it's a very painful process to go through if you're not used to it. If you're not used to it. But once you turn that around, I love that that model. Once you turn that around, it is so powerful. So now if somebody comes up to me and says, oh, I love your presentation, I say, thank you so much. What's one thing I could have done better? Mm-hmm. And to you know, invite to, the criticism. Absolutely. It, to critique. You know, I had two people who looked at my book when I was working on my book. One, you know, minor comments, some grammatical thing. The other one would say, this makes no sense. You already talked about this before. I don't know what your point is. You're rambling. I mean, that was so much more helpful to me. Even if it stings when you hear it and it's frustrating, you it know it's, it, it didn't. At that point, it, honestly, it didn't. It's like, please bring it on. I want to be better. Right. And then when they show it to you, you can see it and you're like, yes, I'm so glad we found that. Yeah. 
Yes, thank you so much. You're right. I am rambling. You're right. This doesn't make any sense. You know, I, I want that. I mean, if I didn't believe it, that would be different. But but still, I would say thank you very much, and I like the way I wrote it. Right. Um, okay. So reframing failure is one key thing. Are there yeah, other reframing. things we need reframing to reframe? Is the key. Yeah. So reframe failure. Reframe competence. Okay. So, for example, the perfectionist might say, you know, did I do my best? I think a better reframe is, did I do it justice? Ah. Because not everything warrants That's, 150%. Did I do it justice? Okay. You know, I think another reframe around competence is, you know, if you don't know the answer, I tell people to channel Mark Twain, who said, I was gratified to be able to answer promptly. I said, I don't know. <laughs> And so I want people to give themselves permission to not know and to not know with confidence. Okay. I mean, think about the person in the meeting who says, who interrupts and says, I'm sorry, I'm really not following. Or could you explain that differently? Or, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not understanding the point. Or, you know, we we're so afraid to, to show our weakness, quote unquote. It's but to ch- confidently not know, I think, is very strong. It's very powerful. And in fact, as a form of reframing, when I was doing the introduction at the beginning, you know, the imposter syndrome comes up in almost every show we have one way or another. The other side of that coin, though, is that the most successful women who have been in here have all expressed, and we hear this from leaders in all different fields, that they had to embrace failure. They had to not see it as a risk. They had to enjoy learning from it and have the confidence to keep um, digging to learn more and apply it. So these very things that you're talking about, when they're embraced, they're the hallmarks of really successful people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So one of the first things is normalize it. Then we reframe it. And then is there anything else? Well, the only thing about reframing, I just want to add one more piece to reframing. Please is we do. need to reframe fear. Oh, yeah. So, you know, the, the question you want to ask yourself is, you know, I, I ask my audiences, how many of you would like to feel confident 24-7? Of course, everyone raises their hands. And my response to that is good luck. <laughs> right. Like, that's not, good luck with that's it. not so human, that's not right? That's how confidence works. You know, for many years, Laura, I used to give people 10 things they could do. And then the evaluation, they go, this is great, but I wish she told us more we could do. Or they come up to the microphone during the Q&A and they say, well, this is great, but is there anything else? And I'd say, well, of the 10 things I gave you, what have you tried? And they say, well, nothing, but is there anything else? And I finally realized that what they wanted was to walk out that door never feeling like an imposter again. And that's when I realized I'd failed to really make it clear that feelings are the last to change. Okay. You have to change how you think, even though you don't believe it, which is the reframing. And then you have to do the third thing, which is to keep going regardless of how you feel. So the persistence, the grit. Yeah. And, well, and to not believe you have to feel confident to do the scary stuff. Right. Which also goes, um, taps into, and is it Amy Cuddy's work? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that if you first act like you can do it, and then you will believe that you can do it. Right? Right. And then the more you do it, and you say, well, I did get through it, or, or I did it and I fell flat on my face, but, but I learned something from it. So it's proceeding while you are afraid, recognizing that you're afraid, but not letting it hold you back. Absolutely. You know, Denzel Washington, before he walked out on stage in Broadway in Fences, he said, when you're standing in the wings, if you don't have that what the hell am I doing here moment, it's time to hang it up. <laughs> right, because you know, that fear, means you're not stretching. Absolutely. Fear goes with, with the territory. And unfortunately, a lot of us take the fact that we are afraid or we are having a crisis of confidence as kind of evidence of our ineptness. Instead of saying, saying, well, of course I'm afraid. I've never done this before. But here's a great thing we can do is, you know, reframe fear as excitement because your body doesn't know the difference between fear and excitement. So as you're walking up to the podium to say to yourself, I'm excited, you know, I'm excited. And again, you won't believe it, but it's the difference between saying, you know, I'm going to die. <laughs> right. <laughs> actually, after a while, you will start feeling excited. It, it really does work. Right. Like if you're going into surgery, it's okay to say, I'm afraid. 
um, you're not the one performing the surgery and it's a totally natural thing to feel. Um, Mm -hmm. But right, if you're going to give a big talk or have an interview um, or you're running a marathon, that fear when channeled as excitement, it's part of what you went there for was to feel alive in that way and that excitement. And if you can recognize it and harness it, it's going to boost your adrenaline and help you perform better, actually. Yeah, it really will. It really will. And, you know, and also to realize it's not all about you, that everybody loses when bright people play small. Say that again, please. Everybody loses when When bright people play small. Absolutely. So now let's talk about what imposter syndrome means in the workplace. How does it hurt your work environment if you're playing small? Well, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. See, there's different ways that we try to protect ourselves from being found out and deal with the anxiety of feeling like an imposter. So things like flying under the radar, not going for promotions, not speaking up in meetings or asking questions or offering our ideas, uh, procrastination, Mm -hmm. workaholism. Never okay. starting or finishing, you know, the, the business plan, the painting, the book. Because if okay, something's this always is, in progress, no one can hurt you. This is a big list, and I see it happen in the workplace all the time. Um, if you've just tuned in, I'm talking with Valerie Young, author of The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, Why Capable People Suffer from the Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It. So in the workplace, there are these habits that almost everybody exhibits at some point and Almost everybody in the workplace is exhibiting at some point every day. Um, To go through that list again. Yeah, so one is flying under the radar. Mm -hmm. We don't speak up. We don't challenge ourselves. We don't go for for promotions and so on. Because if if I can stay small and hidden, no one can... No one can hurt me. No right. One can judge We're me. not at risk. We're not being yeah. judged. We're not ashamed. But it also means if you're an employer or you're a teammate, um, that person isn't stretching, isn't growing, isn't giving all that they could give. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the best person might not be rising to the top because they are, you know, playing it, playing it safe. So as an employer, how do you help them feel safe enough to play big? You know, I think there's ways we can actually kind of shift organizational culture to help people feel like, make, we can fail but not feel like failures. Okay, so embracing failure and supporting it? Yeah, and to, you know, so let's say there's a big project people are working on is to make sure at the end you get back together and you talk about failure analysis. I mean, like what worked and what can you do differently next time? I have to say I heard a fantastic example of that from um, Elise Jorgensen from Spec Design, and she talked about as part of their regular staff meetings, everybody has to share a failure. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a sign of success, that you're trying hard enough and taking enough risks that you failed at something. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, when I was down at Motley Fool, um, what they will do is all their their workstations are on wheels. So on Friday, you could be the head of IT, and on Monday, you're the head of marketing. They just wheel you over. You're just thrown into a new milieu. (laughs) Here, go be a marketer. You know, and it's not because they think you know anything about marketing, but because they know you have the capacity to lead and to grow. And sometimes... It's better to throw somebody in who doesn't know that much because they're going to ask different questions. So as an employer, you're creating a structure where people can't hide. They can't limit themselves. Absolutely. And they know it's all about that they were hired for their potential. They weren't hired because they're, you know, 100 percent subject matter expert. Right. So what were another of these few things? Procrastination was one of them. Yeah, you know, the example I always use is, is somebody who really wanted this internship, and uh, to get it, she had to send in this, you know, big, weighty, heady essay. And, of course, she waited till the day before. She got it in, but she didn't get the, the internship. How procrastination helps us is that she could say to herself, well, you know, I'm disappointed, but I'm hardly surprised because, you know, mm. it really didn't reflect my best effort. But the rub is if she had been successful, she wouldn't have felt deserving. So clearly, not all procrastination, I mean, we all procrastinate, let's face it. Right. But not all procrastination is related to imposter feelings. But, you know, some of us know deep down the reason why we're procrastinating yes. is because we're, because of a confidence kind Right, because Adam Grant's been talking about this in his book Originals and in a recent Abed piece, that there's a kind of creative person's procrastination where something's simmering. 
and you're not ready to pounce on it and the people around you may get nervous because you're not moving on it. But it's a way that you're letting it settle and working out your ideas and then the energy of bursting forth is going to pull it together. That's very different than putting something aside because you almost want to set yourself up for failure or you're afraid to confront the failure of doing it. Yeah, absolutely. So it's fear, once again, that's behind it. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And so what are other things that can happen in the workplace to help um, get people past this? Well, again, I think as an organization, if they can name imposter feelings, I mean, think Mm -hmm. about the old model we're familiar with with law school or medical school. The first day of class where they used to bring students in and say, look to your left, look (laughs) Look to to your your right, right. (laughs) happy you won't be here, you know. Instead, a lot of these prestigious medical schools and law schools are just naming it the very first day. So I can see a work environment, Laura, where new hires, you know, as part of the employee handbook, you know, it's kind of a couple paragraphs on imposter feelings and what it feels like those first few days and weeks and months in a new job. Oh, and that might also go a long way to help people who um, are not well represented in that organization or community. Oh, absolutely. Because if you belong to any group, if you're a you know, woman, a person of color, um, if you have a visible disability, and whenever you belong to a group for whom there are stereotypes about your competence, mm-hmm. there is a greater kind of sensitivity. You know, you're the person in the meeting and you're the only one who looks like you, you know, who seems to have the wrong answer or says the quote unquote dumb thing. Right. Or you're the only MBA in the creative startup in San Francisco or yeah. the only artist in the business school. It's it, it really can be any form of being the outsider or the other. Absolutely. It's especially when the inside group thinks they're smarter. Right. So part of it is being conscious as an organization about welcoming people in and acknowledging their value, even when they're not seeing the ways that they connect. Yeah, absolutely. Any other tips for those individuals as they embark into those environments? Um, As individuals, well, if you don't have, you know, if you really are in a very distinct minority, you know, you're a woman in a manufacturing environment or in a very male-dominated field, or you're the only, you know, Latino or African-American, is is to find your allies inside, but you also might want to make sure you have a very strong network outside of work as well. So shore yourself up emotionally on the outside and find people that you can connect with inside, even if it's just a few. Absolutely. And then to remember, um, um, you know, oh, God, gosh, why am I totally, this is a really good example <laughs> of, <laughs> of the thing you don't want to do. Um, well, Eleanor Roosevelt, thank you, said, no one can make you inferior, feel, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. So other people might have stereotypes and ideas about, you know, what what women can do or competence about other folks, but they can't control you. You can only control what you do. Valerie, I can't think of a more perfect note to end on. Thank you once again for joining us on Women at Work. You've been fabulous. My pleasure. Thanks to Patty and Dan. Check out our replays on SiriusXM website, www.siriusxm.com. Next week, I'll be talking with Rainey Aronson-Rath, the new executive producer of the iconic PBS series Frontline, and Michelle Jaffe and Anu Bardwaj from Women Investing in Women and Girls. And we'll be talking about all the different ways that women and girls can find advocacy out there and how we can help. Thank you so much for listening to Women at Work here on SiriusXM 111, business radio powered by the the Wharton School. I'm Laura Sarrow, and I'm looking forward to talking with you next week. Thanks so much, everyone.